what DNA methylation is, is basically it's adding small groups of carbon onto the physical DNA. It's almost like a watermark. You're basically like painting the DNA right around that gene with these what are called methyl groups, or DNA methylation. And what that does is that actually starts to dampen or silence the amount of gene expression coming from that gene. So that's all it really is at its sort of simplest form is a way to turn down or tune down the expression of a gene. And then where the fun part comes in, if you're a biologist, is figuring out which genes do I start to tune to actually create a new trait, to create a disease-resistant plant, to create a longer-lasting tomato, a healthier lettuce, something like that. Welcome to Fall Line Field Notes, a podcast exploring the intersection of technology with agriculture and food. We're your hosts, I'm Clay Mitchell. And I'm Eric O'Brien. Today's guest is Travis Bayer, co-founder and CTO at Sound Agriculture, which was our first venture investment at Fall Line in 2014. We've got a lot of fond memories of Travis, both in the field and in the lab out here in the Bay Area. His approach to farming addresses consumer demands and changing weather patterns to build a more agile and resilient agricultural system. Travis worked as an associate professor in the biochemistry department at Oxford and a lecturer in synthetic biology at Imperial College London. This conversation dives into several aspects of synthetic biology as it relates to ag. We touch on epigenetics, DNA methylation, and how the entire field of synthetic biology has progressed to enable new innovations led by startups versus incumbents with seemingly far more resources. Travis highlights the way that they work with natural microbes and processes used by plants and soil to increase efficiency. He also gives insights into how Sound Ag was founded and the way they've scaled the team and the product pipeline. We begin our interview with Travis, giving us a bit of an origin story on Sound Ag. For myself, coming from academia, coming from running a faculty group, it did feel very lean and very austere to start with. But we were excited that in 2015, we had you, Fallline, and Cultivian invest. And for us, that initial, effectively, seed investment was exciting. And it also felt like a lot of responsibility. It was more cash than we had managed ever. So that was a big deal for us. I think in terms of memories, you know, some of my first ones with Fallline are really effectively, Clay, using your farm as a field station. And for us, that was myself, my co-founder, Eric, getting out and hand harvesting corn, hauling things to the shed, literally shelling ears of corn by hand to get incredibly accurate counts. So to me, the early days were a lot of do it yourself and do it incredibly scrappy and incredibly cheap. Yeah, on our end, it was really satisfying to be able to have something that we could get our hands on. Let's take a quick step back and give people some context here. Yeah, I think that What matters. does sound do? Well, so I would say we are a life science company developing small molecule chemistry and biomolecules to help improve sustainability in agriculture. And for me, that means the productivity per acre as well as the efficiency of resource use per acre. So our products are life science in a jug that a farmer can buy, they can use on their farm, and it increases the efficiency of their whole operation. Our first product source is really aimed at replacing synthetic fertilizer by stimulating the microbes in the soil already to provide nitrogen and phosphorus for the plant. So that's really the kind of the basis of where we come from. Our process looks a lot like drug discovery, but the end goal is always more sustainable, more efficient operation on the farm. And give us a sense for your background and why it lent itself to this project. Yeah, so my background, I guess you could say I kind of grew up in the field of synthetic biology. So doing my undergrad, my PhD, and my postdoctoral work was really all about thinking of living systems like an engineered system. How can we actually modulate it, adapt it, basically hack it and reprogram it to do more useful, more efficient things 
after all that academic training, I went and started a faculty career in the UK. So I was at Imperial College and then later Oxford and really got interested in agriculture. I didn't really come from a farming family or farming background, but for me, thinking of the positive impact you could have in the world if you're actually doing something good in agriculture was really, really attractive. We've got an audience that I think ranges in types of backgrounds and maybe some common ground. Define for us what you mean by synthetic biology. Yeah, so synthetic biology really emerged in the mid-2000s, and it was a group of, I'd say, chemical engineers, computer scientists, biologists, who really started to say, okay, you have, let's just take a bacterial cell. A bacterial cell has 6,000 genes. Can we start to think about that like we think about electronics, where you have modules you can swap in and out? Can you think about a programming language for biology instead of for, say, circuit boards? And so a lot of synthetic biology is really thinking about engineering living systems. That's the simplest way I could put it. I was wondering if you could speak a little to kind of what discovery looks like for you. For those of us who have been close to you through sound, we all associate this great creativity in the discovery process and remember these moments where, where you've come into meetings, you know, describing something new, some new kind of interaction that you've seen in a lab. You know, first of all, for the source product that you were referring to earlier, what was that process like? Yeah, so I'd say creativity is one of our values. And our process looks like embracing that, but also trying to rigorously test those new ideas as fast and as cheap as possible. And so we fail a lot. We actually have a lot of ideas from the whiteboard that make it to the lab bench and don't go anywhere. The ones that we get excited about are the ones that start to prove out in that first assay in the lab, in the greenhouse, and then ultimately in the field. So for our source product, we were actually interested in the types of chemistry that plants and microbes use to communicate in the soil. Because what's happening under the ground is that plants are signaling to the microbes to basically say, hey, do you want to trade nutrients with us? And so what we were looking at in one project was actually how we could get in the middle of that process, in the middle of that communication. And what we found were some really interesting molecules that basically could let us artificially get in the middle of this and stimulate this activity in the soil. And so it kind of snowballed from there. You know, we started to see some really interesting stuff in the lab from the microbial point of view in the greenhouse, looking at plant health, and then ultimately in the field. I think one of the interesting things for me in observing what you've developed here is that plant signaling is picked up by microbes that are really far apart in a functional space. You know, you're affecting fungi, you're affecting bacteria that are extremely different organisms, but that also have a relationship with a plant and have evolved in a way to be, you know, responsive to that signal. I wonder if you could kind of speak to how you've productized this into something that has agronomically useful effects. Yeah, so when we were looking at the foundational science, I'd call it, we also were immediately thinking about how to productize it. And to give you one example of that, we're thinking about chemistry that's acting at the root zone. But what we wanted to do is figure out, could we actually have a product that a grower could spray on the canopy to give you flexibility in season? And so part of the discovery process and the screening process for us was, Let's look at all the chemistry that does this, but then let's also look at the subset of that chemistry that could be applied on the canopy and basically translocate through the plant to the root zone. So that was kind of an early consideration of what's this going to look and feel like for the grower, because we wanted it to be as convenient as possible to have that in-season flexibility. We didn't want to be constrained to an infro application or a seed treatment. We wanted that ultimate convenience and ease of use. And so very early on with a lot of our projects, we're thinking about what is 
the user going to do? How are they going to feel this thing, touch this thing, use this thing? Now, I think we'll come back to this topic some more, but just to kind of you know, give the listeners an early view on the scope of what you're doing, there's also a platform around epigenetic breeding that you've developed. And I was wondering if you could describe that platform and how you stumbled upon that discovery as well. Yeah, so let me describe epigenetics at a high level first, and then I'll talk about how we got into that. But epigenetics, think about that like software in the context of the genome. The genes, the sequence of DNA is the hardwired pieces of the biology. What epigenetics is, is a way to regulate gene expression, basically how much a gene is turned on or turned off at any given time. And the field of epigenetics is interested in some mechanisms that do that in a way that's heritable. So the classic example here is looking at plants in nature, where a plant might be exposed to drought stress, and it adapts to survive in that drought stress. But then when it's children, it's progeny, are there in the next generation, they are already pre-adapted to drought. So that's an amazing mechanism. So we were really interested in looking at this and tapping into this because we think about our products like Source as a in-season, flexible way to rewrite or reprogram the biology on the fly. And so if you can do that with epigenetics, you can do that on the fly, but also have that be heritable. So that is a much faster way to do breeding or a much faster way to do the types of things you would want to do with gene editing, for example. So, you know, I mentioned drought stress and abiotic stress tolerance. So the, uh, you know, one of the things that we're looking at with epigenetics is going in and pre-adapting plants to stressful conditions. We have some projects where we're looking at more consumer-facing traits. So in tomatoes and leafy greens, where we're creating tomatoes with longer shelf life and better flavor, you know, things you could do would be increasing nutrition content, reducing the amount of bitterness in greens, things like that, that, you know, can really span the spectrum from consumer-facing all the way through to agronomic traits. When we think about the R&D dollars that have been spent since the ag industry began, let's say, probably 99.95% of those dollars have been spent on corn and soybeans. Why does it make sense to look at other crops now and what's enabling the opportunity to play with trades in crops that, you know, frankly, have not been big businesses or have been too expensive to adjust previously? Yeah, I think it really gets back to ROI. And the, you know, crops like tomatoes and lettuce, much smaller opportunity but the cost structure for us of doing that work has gone down dramatically. So instead of doing a $100 million project to create a transgenic event in corn, a GMO, we can spend $50,000 and create a new trait in tomato. So that changes your perception of what makes economic sense to work on. And you touched on GMO and you mentioned traits in tomato. Help us understand how this epigenetic approach factors into a concept of a genetically modified organism or not. Yeah, so there's a lot of good analogies with epigenetics and how that relates to gene editing and genetic modification. I'd say, you know, really what we're doing with epigenetics is playing with what's in nature already. So it's like turning up and down the volume at a mixing board if you're recording an orchestra. A GM is like adding an electric guitar to the orchestra. It's adding a completely new thing to that ensemble. What we're doing with epigenetics is really just tuning what's already there. Travis, you came from a very academic background, a scientific background before starting Sound. What was it like to kind of learn the ropes in business in a Silicon Valley startup? Who were the mentors that you relied on and how to fund and build the company in the early days? Yeah, you know, I think it's been really entertaining. And for me, part of my personality is loving to learn new things all the time. Some people might say that's a 
personality flaw of needing to be stimulated with new things all the time. So, you know, for me, I think my co-founder, Eric, going into, you know, a new phase of career where you're learning about, you know, financing a company, running a company, you're learning about, you know, things like HR and accounting is really exciting. And I know that might be the first time somebody said exciting and accounting in the same sentence in a while, but we had mentors, both, I'd say, formal and informal. A lot of the advantage of being here in the Bay Area was reaching out to friends and colleagues who were right on that same journey with us in different companies. And so, you know, one of the networks I was really fortunate to have was one from some of my academic training where I was in a lab where a lot of the grad students and postdocs ended up starting companies. And so that was really useful to me to be able to have that peer group in addition to some mentors and some great investors like Fallon. Certainly, it was my observation that you engaged in you know, every aspect of the business, as you described, for HR, finance, accounting, communications, website design, whatever it was, you had been thinking deeply about it. And as the company grew, we decided you know, a few years ago that while you were kind of managing across all these areas, we could benefit from bringing in a new CEO and also a skilled board chair. And Cheryl Martin came in as chair of the board and Adam Lytle came in as CEO. And in most of those transitions, many of those transitions, the kind of founding CEO either moves into a very diminished position or very often leaves the company. And that can happen in friendly or unfriendly ways. This is a very unusual situation here in that I continue to see you engaged across all of these different areas of business, the creative parts of the R&D program. What were some of the things that you know, has made that successful for you and Eric Davidson as well, who continues in key product role? Yeah, well, I think it's a couple of things. The first is an acknowledgement that while you're starting out and starting to scale up, you're doing all the things, but doing all the things does not scale. Right. You hit a point where you as a founder or you as a, you know, founding CEO or CTO, you can only do so much. And so you really want to bring in folks who have experience of expertise in these other areas where you're still on a learning curve and maybe you're actually getting pretty good at that function. But there's people out there who've been doing this for a long time for a whole career. So I think that's one thing is understanding, you know, kind of approaching it with a bit of humility and keeping your ego in check a little bit of you shouldn't be doing all the things and you're probably not the best at all the things. So, you know, to scale this further, focus on a few things. I think that's one. I think the other is really having that working relationship and that shared understanding with the, you know, your board chair, your CEO, your investors and your broader board as well, that you do have a role to play, you have value to bring. And that's worked for us so far. If you think back over the past you know, several years, essentially since inception, can you think about a couple of the key challenges that you guys have faced and overcome and then kind of projecting forward from here, what are the biggest challenges on the horizon? You know, if I think back to, I'd say the earlier years, one big challenge we had was really thinking about what the business model would be. And what we decided, you know, early on, we were very small, I'd say 90% scientists, you know, at the bench. And there was a real debate whether we should remain, I'd say, effectively an R&D shop and out-license our technology to bigger players to take to market, or should we raise the capital, build the team, and actually take products to market ourselves. And we decided to actually, you know, take a product to market ourselves. We thought we could build the market better and faster than a big partner. So I think that was a big challenge. I remember a lot of, you know, tension on our sort of nascent leadership team when we made that decision. I remember having some really in-depth conversations with the investors and the board. So that was one. I'd say that in 
2020-2021, another big challenge for us was basically starting to scale the headcount. We had been fairly, I'd say, linear growth for the first couple of years. And in 2020, we basically started doubling the headcount of the team by 2x every year. And I think we did four straight years of that. So just onboarding that amount of people. I know that's not a lot in terms of the Silicon Valley ecosystem we're in, but you know, for us going from 25 to 50 was a big jump, 50 to 100 was a big jump. And so that really also underscored the idea that you do need to bring on a support team and have you know, a GNA function that is not super lean, that actually has some expertise and has some resources. And I'm curious on that point, how would you have defined company culture before that significant growth and headcount? And then how would you say it has changed since you have scaled? You know, we launched Source in 2020. And so that for me is kind of pre-commercial and post-commercial. And pre-commercial, I'd say our culture was very, very similar to what you see in academic labs around the world. So largely principal investigator driven, and that was me, right? Kind of acting as the pseudo professor of the group. Very mission driven, very focused and very excited about the technology. We still have that in the culture, but I'd say the culture is so much broader now. It's We brought in folks from other startups, successful ones in ag tech. We brought in folks from big companies. We've really kind of rounded out the, I'd say, diversity of viewpoints that's brought to the table. And so I'd say our culture now has a lot more urgency and a lot more, I'd say, impatient optimism, to borrow a phrase, where we have a lot of people in the company who are here because of the mission, are here because of the vision of what we're trying to do, but are also really, really excited about getting up every day and making that happen that day. How has that manifested itself in, if you think about the time it took to get to first commercial product, and now you look at, at Pipeline, what have you seen change with that sort of level of urgency changing? Yeah, I think we're accelerating quite a bit. We go from basically 2015, when we took our first venture investment, to 2020, we had a handful of products in the pipeline. Now, I'd say we're probably between 5 and 10x that volume. And we're ramping up pretty significantly from here. So not only are we expanding our small molecule inputs pipeline, like our source product, but we now have a traits pipeline from the epigenetics side and some other sort of radical blue sky things out there as well. So I think the urgency to create that change from the commercial side has really kind of pushed backwards into the research group as well. And I love it because I think we kind of now have the best of both worlds. So rounding out the question and thinking about the challenges, kind of chief challenges that you've identified, let's say over the course of the next 12, 18 months, what do those look like? Yeah, so I think we are in a really unique climate right now. I think that Clay was talking earlier about us always being lean. I think that that is a lot more on trend now, right? (laughs) Making sure you're managing cash, managing runway, growing responsibly. So I think that's going to be the real challenge over the next I'd say 12 to 36 months is maintaining that commercial velocity while really keeping an eye on being as efficient as possible. And we've always sort of had that in our DNA, but I think that's more important now than it has been over the past few years. Now, the business model and with the nitrogen efficiency product, the soil applied product is pretty clear. You're directly selling that to farmers. The epigenetics platform we call on-demand breeding, the ODB platform, is a different business model. Who's the customer there Could you describe that model? Yeah, so that model is much more partnership-driven. And we have created a number of partnerships with basically breeders and seed companies, big and small. So all the way from the the biggest names with 
most market share, all the way down to smaller, more, I'd say, focused efforts in specialty crops. And the reason we can do that is because the platform is very fast and very cheap for us to run. So we can easily take five, six projects at a time and work on a particular trait in a partner's germplasm. The reason we want to have a partnership route here is that you do have a lot of incumbency effects in these markets. So a big seed company with a global corn or soy portfolio has a real competitive advantage. We don't want to fight that. We don't want to try to disrupt that given what I just said about you know, managing cash efficiently. We want to help enable that and pull value you know, from that as we succeed. In the speed of that on-demand breeding platform, I know that there's a lot of internal know-how that's unique to sound, but there are also some powerful tools that have enabled this that you know haven't been available in the past. Are the tools you're using today at Sound to power that platform you know, significantly different from what you've had in your grad school days, for example? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that's really enabled us to move quickly in the whole field of epigenetics is something called nanopore sequencing, which is sequencing long pieces of DNA by pulling them through a nano-sized pore. And with that, we can read the sequence, the you know, ATCs and Gs of the DNA, we can also tell which cytosines, the C, is methylated, which is the whole kind of basis of what we're doing here. It's DNA methylation. So we're generating terabytes of data on a weekly basis. You know, a few years ago in epigenetics, it was a challenge to get a few thousand base pairs of data, a few kilobases at high resolution. So that's been a multiple orders of magnitude step change in our ability to read plant epigenetics. And that really complements our platform because what we're doing is writing epigenetics. And so if you can read and you can write, you can start to do a lot of cool stuff. Can you talk a little bit more about that nanopore technology and you know, how widely available is it? How expensive is it? Are you doing this in-house? Is it outsourced? And how different is it from prior ways of sequencing? Yeah, so you know, it's commercially available. So there's you know, PacBio, Oxford Nanopore. There's a lot of long-read sequencing out there. Those are two of the biggest ones. So a lot of what we're doing in terms of the lab infrastructure and the wetware is off the shelf. Where we've come in and spent a little bit of time and effort developing is the software package around that to actually pull data from those devices, analyze that, and figure out where in a genome do you actually see epigenetic hotspots. So that's been an internal effort. That's actually one of the reasons that we're able to move pretty fast in this area is kind of combine that off-the-shelf aspect with a bit of internal development. Can you talk a little bit more about just the concept of DNA methylation? I mean, I think people in daily life now are hearing more and more about DNA methylation in our own bodies relating to how we age and the appearance of, you know, health issues and, and so forth. So I think it's an interesting topic for people to understand better. Yeah. So just using plants as an example, you know, if you imagine a gene, right, it's a stretch of DNA. And if you remember back to high school biology, what happens is a piece of DNA gets turned into messenger RNA that gets turned into a protein, right? Transcription and translation. Well, if you can control that first step, how much of that DNA is being read to RNA to protein, you can actually do a lot of interesting things. You can control the amount of protein or enzymes being created in a particular cell at a particular point in time. So what DNA methylation is, is basically it's adding small groups of carbon onto the physical DNA. It's almost like a watermark. You're basically like painting the DNA right around that gene with these what are called methyl groups, DNA methylation. And what that does is that actually starts to dampen or silence the amount of gene expression coming from that gene. So that's all it really is at its sort of 
simplest form is a way to turn down or tune down the expression of a gene. And then where the fun part comes in, if you're a biologist, is figuring out which genes do I start to tune to actually create a new trait, to create a disease-resistant plant, to create a longer-lasting tomato, a healthier lettuce, something like that. How should we think about how methylation occurs? There are natural events, radiation, like variety of things that can cause methylation. What are some of the things that cause methylation sort of randomly and naturally? And then what are the things that you can do to actually be purposeful about it? Yeah, so in plants, a lot of the natural methylation is environment responsive. So plants, because they can't get up and move, have all these really cool mechanisms to sense their environment. Is it hotter today than it was yesterday? Is it cold? Do I have too much water, not enough water? They can sense all those environmental conditions and then respond by methylating certain pathways. So you might want to turn down the expression of a pathway that's responsible for you know, pulling in nitrogen if you don't have a lot of nitrogen in the soil. So those are sort of natural pathways. What we figured out how to do is actually get in the middle of that natural pathway with a designer molecule to guide it and methylate where we want. So instead of relying on the plant, kind of just doing what it naturally does, we can direct it to the pathways that we're interested in. Mm -hmm. And that mechanism, your designer molecule, does not represent genetic modification because you're not introducing any new traits into... Right. So we, we never introduce foreign DNA. That's the real kind of genetically modified part of a GMO is adding a transgene, something that's not native to that plant. So we never do that. We never introduce foreign DNA. But we also don't make sequence changes. The DNA sequence of the untreated plant and the treated plant are identical. All we've done is change that pattern of methyl groups on the genes that subtly changes the expression levels and gives us that new trait. How many uh, generations of heritability are you seeing in the ODB platform? Yeah, we're out to six generations in soybean and five generations in tomato. And we're continuing those experiments. What we're seeing is actually really interesting. The context of methylation matters. So not only where you're methylating, but which types of cytosines you're methylating. Um, some contexts are very transient and basically epigenetic noise that go away after one or two generations. Others that we're targeting are quite stable. And we're not sure how long they last yet. But, you know, if you get out beyond six, seven, eight generations, that's what you need to have a commercial product in a row crop like soy or corn. Now, whether methylation or demethylation is driven by environmental conditions or, you know, some engineered system like what you're doing, I'm sure that it's never completely binary across every cell in an organism. I'm curious what kind of expressions you see with different levels of mosaicing, and if that's something that depends also quite a bit on the context, or how does that look in organisms like us or plants? Yeah, so I can't speak to human epigenetics, but we'll talk a little bit about plants. So what we see when we create these new methylation patterns is that some cells get that methylation pattern and some don't. And so what we do to resolve that and have a plant that has is all methylated, has every cell has that epigenetic change is basically let it self, basically let it go to seed and create another generation and then do that again. And that's a really kind of common part of breeding is that seed expansion, that selfing to basically bulk out your seed stock. And so for us, it's a step in the process 
where we create diversity in a population, we select the plants out of that population that we want, and then we let them sell for two generations. And that's where we tend to have stronger traits and stronger methylation signals is once you get out to the second or third treated generation. So to put an example around that with respect to the tomatoes, you might find in Gen 1 that a tomato is exhibiting the trait or the characteristic that you're looking for, not across the entire fruit itself. Or, yeah, or a so, certain fruit would so have... Not, not across the entire plant. So if you imagine a tomato plant with, say, a dozen fruits, you might see some that are have really extended shelf life and some that are closer to the parent. And so what we do is we act just like breeders, and that's why we call this epigenetic breeding or on-demand breeding. We take the fruits, we take the plants that are showing the strongest version of that trait and pass them on to the next generation. So it really is a lot like what a breeder would do where they're making a cross and they're looking for the best plants in the field. Shifting back to the products that you have on the market today, when you're communicating value to farmers, what is the ROI that you believe the product can demonstrate? And then in a sea of products that farmers can choose from, and you've got some notable competitors, other startups in the space, how are you proving value and how are you differentiating yourselves in the market? The value of source is that it provides 25 units of nitrogen and 25 units of phosphorus right at the root zone in season. And you can look at the, you know, what's the price of nitrogen, what's the price of phosphorus, and get your ROI pretty quickly that way based on the price of source. But the other kind of, I'd say, advantage of source is that in-season component. It's the fact that instead of going out and having to do a side dress, right, having to go out with fertilizer in season, you can basically tank mix source into your post-emergence herbicide pass or your fungicide pass. So if you're going to go out and spray something, you can put source in there and get an extra boost of NMP right at the root zone. So we are hands down the most convenient, easiest to use nutrient efficiency product on the market. There are a lot of competitors. There's a lot of products that are effectively live microbes or engineered microbes. And this has some challenges in terms of handling. You open the package, you open the container, and you have you know 24 hours to get that on the field. With Source, Source is chemistry. So Source is chemistry in a jug. It's shelf-stable for two years. You can tank mix it with herbicides, fungicides, surfactants, whatever you're spraying. And we really see that as a big differentiator, that it's in season, it's convenient, and it is providing both nitrogen and phosphorus. The nitrogen story gets a lot of press and a lot of airtime, but phosphorus is a pretty important nutrient for the crop as well. And what we did in the development process for Source is really look for molecules that could stimulate both the nitrogen fixation side as well as the phosphate solubilization side. So we really thought that that dual action of NMP would be really beneficial for the grower. And are you actually selling directly to growers or are you selling through retailers and, and distributors sort of acting as a small version of a you know, traditional chemical company? Yeah, we have a, I'd say our, our route to market is primarily through a dealer network. And so these are typically growers, but not always, who are selling maybe seeds, maybe some agronomic services and are really excited by the value prop of source and are really excited about the some of the tailwinds that we're seeing in terms of sustainability, in terms of not having to handle so much fertilizer. Basically, that's the bulk of the go-to-market. We also have some direct-to-grower as well. So especially for large growers who are interested in this value prop, we'll sell direct. Proof is in the pudding in terms of revenue growth, but also in terms of repeat customer usage. You can get farmers maybe to try something with the right incentives once. Can you comment at all in terms of the repeat usage patterns that you guys are seeing? Yeah, we're seeing 
really strong net retention and logo retention. So growers who are using it, the vast majority of them are coming back. And the exciting thing for us is that they're buying between double and triple what they bought the year before. And so that's a really exciting indicator for us that they're seeing value in the product. What is the application rate? So we are very low application rate, about an ounce, a fluid ounce per acre. I think this is one of the things that I've always enjoyed about the product. In the last few minutes of the conversation here, since we regard you as such a renaissance man when it comes to technologies, particularly in ag, I would love to maybe open up the aperture a little bit here. And if we think about what we're hearing daily in the press these days about the impact of new technologies like AI, generative AI, you talked about you know, nanopore sequencing. What are some of the things that most excite you in terms of new technology developments that could be enabling to either sound or the ag industry generally? Yeah, I think that not to you know talk more about AI, I do think we've not yet seen in agriculture and especially agriculture chemistry, the deployment of AI at scale to discover and develop new molecules. There's a few groups working on that that are making some really cool progress, but we haven't seen that kind of ripple through the industry yet. So that's very much on the effectively drug discovery side of ag. I think that's pretty exciting. I do think we're also at a point where you've had a lot of investment in accelerated breeding, new breeding technologies. Most of that's gene editing. Folks like us who are doing epigenetics and some other things, but we haven't really seen the products come out of that pipeline yet. And I believe we're about to start to see that wave, you know, between now and the next, I'd say, maybe to 2030, I think we're going to start to see just more and more interesting value-add traits and products on the market from the whole breeding movement. Those are the ones that I'm pretty excited about. You know, I, I think that the integration of hardware, biology, data analytics, that'll be one that will continue and probably accelerate. But the life science side is closer to my home. When you think about the human resource required to build out your own technology team, but then kind of in the industry at large, where are you finding, you know, top quality technical talent? Are they coming from ag and plant science backgrounds? Are you bringing people from human health into ag? What's the attractiveness of the ag industry for talent? What's that talent pipeline look like? Yeah, I'd say yes and is my answer there. We're typically pulling people from Iowa State, UC Davis, ag schools, Cornell, for example. But we're also getting people who have kind of come up in the synthetic biology world where they're thinking about biology as engineering. And maybe they haven't worked in agriculture, but they get really hooked on the mission and vision of if you can improve what's happening on a single acre and you can scale that, then you can have positive impacts on food security, on climate, on health and well-being of people. It goes on and on. And so it's not hard to get people outside of ag into ag. And we've been really fortunate to get a blend of people who are hardcore plant science agronomists, have always wanted to do that and getting people who are kind of coming into it later in their career trajectory and saying, hey, this is a really cool space where you can do really important work. Any advice for people in that sort of high school to college age? So my daughter's a sophomore in college. She just introduced me to a friend of hers who is studying biotech at UC Davis. And this individual is interested in kind of learning where opportunities are. Any advice to people of that generation as to the things that they can do and to enable them to have opportunities in this space? 
Yeah, I would say probably look to more of the liberal arts mindset. And I say that as someone who's always been in the sciences, but don't be a specialist too early. You want to explore and be relatively interdisciplinary as long as you can until you need to specialize to actually get something done, right? So you want to go out and, you know, if you want to take courses in computer science, do that. If you want to take courses in, you know, molecular biology, do that. You get that kind of broader experience and exposure. And then when you pick a problem, when you see a problem that's, hey, I want to dedicate my life to this or at least a big chunk of my career, then you go deep and specialize in that. So I would say have that liberal arts point of view early on and then find that unique niche and that unique problem for you. That's, a, I think, a really interesting and insightful response because I perceive from this generation and talking to my kids' friends that they have a view that in order to succeed, they must specialize early. That's the only way they're going to find a job. And it, I mean, that carries over into so many elements of kids growing up today and picking sports and specializing, all of that. So I think that's very helpful. And it sounds like as well, what you're saying is that specialization doesn't need to occur while you are still in academia. It can take place later on yeah, when you're absolutely. in the commercial world. Absolutely. Terrific. I think this has been a terrific conversation. Really appreciate your time, Travis. Before we wrap up, you know, any other thoughts or insights that you would share being a founder of a successful ag tech startup? We've got an audience of entrepreneurs out there who I think aspire to be in the position that Sound is in. Any last advice before we wrap? I would say one thing, now having been on this journey for a number of years, is you really need to have an outlet or a way to deal with the roller coaster, right? The highs are high and the lows are low and it doesn't get better. You know, if once you close your series A, you, th- you might think, oh, it's going to get easier, calmer. It doesn't. It gets worse and worse. In terms of the highs and the lows, right? The amplitude gets bigger and bigger as you go on. So for me, that's, you know, going outside, going for a run on a trail. It's different for other people, but that's the advice I would give entrepreneurs is, figure out a way to modulate those emotions. It'll serve you in the long run. And we can attest to Travis's ability to run. We did a corporate relay one year, and I think Travis blew us all away with the speed of his 10K. He's so, a good uh, <laughs> yeah. Excellent. Thank you so much for your time, Travis. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you. All right. Thank you. We just spoke with Travis Bayer, who was the first entrepreneur that we backed here at Fallline Capital. And Travis went deep into some of the science that he's working on in epigenetics and also using plant signaling to modify the expression of microbes that supply nutrients to plants in fields. So yeah, we touched on some themes that are similar to our episode with Barry Goldman of Pluton but a very different perspective and a very different stage of company. This is a company that is now into you know, significant revenue, at least from a startup perspective, and has a lot of traction. And uh, Travis you know, really is a renaissance man and from a technology perspective. And one of the things that is hard to understand if aren't familiar with the space is just how different the modes of action are with respect to the product they have on the market today and all of the epigenetic technology that they've developed. It's not obvious that you would have those two things happen in the same company. So it's fascinating to hear how his background has allowed for these seemingly very different innovations to occur. Well, thank you for listening to this episode of the Fall Line Field Notes. And you can catch us wherever you download your podcasts or directly on our website at www.fall-line-capital.com.